there is a reality to Advent that most of you probably don't face, but those who are pastors face every single year. And that is for the last 30 years, trying to find a way to address this incredible event that changed everything, but in a fresh way, in a way that keeps us excited about what was accomplished those 2,000 years ago, to renew again our attitudes of joy and celebration, to remind us of our need for brokenness and repentance. And every year, usually around October, maybe a little earlier, I'm thinking through what's going to be the Advent messages this year. 30-some years, I've never failed to find something in God's Word that was new and exciting. And if the Lord would allow me to continue to preach a hundred more Advents, I don't think I'd ever find the end of it. This year, as I was thinking it through, I came across a passage that truly blew me away. It's three verses, four verses. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. And as I was reading that passage, it suddenly dawned on me that in this little capsule, Paul takes the reality of what we call Advent and just lays it open. To give a context, beginning in chapter 3, verse 26, and going down through Galatians 4, verse 7. In that little section, in those 10 verses, there are two doctrinal affirmations, probably spoken by the early church, either through the times of baptism, when those who were being baptized would come up out of the water, it would either be spoken by those who were being baptized, or maybe by that one who was baptizing them, or it might have been part of the the church as they gathered together on the Lord's Day, on, on, on Sunday, and they were reviewing what was true about God and what he had accomplished. And so as Paul was writing this section, as he's dealing with those who are bringing false teaching, in Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26, through the end of that chapter is the first doctrinal statement and declaration. And then probably again, beginning in verse 4, is the second. In chapters, in, in verses 4 through 7 of, of chapter 4, Paul says six statements. That's it. And in those six statements, blows open the incredible reality of what it means for Christ to come. In those six statements, beginning with, in the fullness of time, 
and ending with the fact that we are delivered from the law and made full heirs in Christ. Paul tells us the theology behind this story. And not only does he use Matthew and Luke, but even John. And in those few statements, in those six declarations, he begins in eternity past. says, this is what God was about. Deals with the event that changed all of cosmic history. The advent, the incarnation of Christ. And moves out into eternity future. When the fullness of our inheritance is not only received, but enjoyed. He deals with the fact that Jesus, who existed as God eternally, was born of a woman. Born under the law. To free and to redeem God's people. Incredible verses. And so as I was thinking through Advent, I thought, we're going to focus just on those verses. And over the next several weeks, we're going to take a look at the wonder of this cosmic shattering event, the advent of Christ. And not just focus on, you know, baby Jesus, meek and mild. That's only this part of it. the reality of an eternal God, creator of the universe, who took upon himself humanity to allow us to enjoy a relationship with him throughout all of eternity. This week, we look at the simple phrase that says, in the fullness of time, when God fulfilled his purposes, that's when Christ came. Next week, we'll take a look at the phrase that declares that he was sent by God and born of a woman. The incarnation, the fact that God became man and dwelt among us. The third week, we'll look at the phrase that says that he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And then right before Christmas, we'll look at his gift to us. The gift of the Spirit that allows us to cry, Abba, Father. And to fully enjoy the inheritance that God has given to us. My hope is that God will use an incredibly inadequate servant to thrill us with the reality of Advent. For you see, when you begin to look at it, this is what you understand about Advent. Anytime Jesus arrives, anytime he shows up in a special way, 
provides the hope for a full enjoyment of what God has given and promised to his people. And remember, when we think about Advent, please don't only think past tense. Don't only think of the fact that Jesus came. That is true. And there's an advent to that. And we will look and see how God accomplished amazing things through the fact that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. But remember also that Jesus comes right now. At the moment of faith and at the time when God's people gather together, he comes. And in the midst of the Advent season to be reminded, oh, but he's coming again. Not simply to allow us to have and to enjoy the inheritance, but to experience it in its fullness. Now we look at Galatians chapter 4, but... To understand it, we need to understand a little bit about what was going on. Because when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he was ticked. He was righteously indignant. Because there were teachers coming around that were teaching what they declared to be truth that was about to destroy the ability of the Galatian church to enjoy this incredible inheritance that God was giving to them. So Paul writes with a bit of fury in his words and in his pen. Because he's dealing with those that are trying to distort the message of grace. They're trying to distort what it is that God came to accomplish. And we we need to understand a little bit about what's going on in Galatians. And what was going on is that there were some who were coming and were teaching this. To be God's people. To really be part of God's nation, to be part of God's inheritance, to to be a part of what God is doing, the first thing you need to do is you first need to become Jewish. You need to live under the law. You need to bring your sacrifices to the temple. You need to follow the dietary laws and not eat shrimp. To me, that's the worst of them. You need to follow all the cleansing and all the ceremonies. You need to be circumcised if you were a man. To be a part of God's people, you had to do all of that. And then Jesus made it possible for you to be part of God's people. And the way it developed, if you read through the first couple of chapters of, of Galatians, you'll, you'll see there that what had happened was 
Paul and Barnabas had come to the church at Galatia. And they were teaching the Gentiles how faith in Christ would make them part of God's people. That that act of faith made them recipients of this wonderful inheritance. All of these promises that God had given. And simply based on their faith in what Christ had accomplished, they were part of God's people. Nothing else had to be done to make them part of God's people. Peter joined them. And they were having their Sunday potlucks together. Eating together. Until a few guys from Jerusalem showed up. Called Judaizers. And they began to look negatively towards what Paul was doing and eating with the Gentiles and what Peter was doing and sitting down and eating meals with those who were uncircumcised. It got so bad that Peter actually stopped eating with those Gentile believers. And Paul got furious. He confronted Peter. And as he was confronting him, he wanted them to understand that you don't become a part of God's people by following the law. You want to be a child of God? That's a wonderful thing. You want to be part of God's people? That's a phenomenal thing. And Paul wanted all of the Galatians to know, you don't have to obey all the tenets of the law to become a part of God's people. And so Paul proclaimed this, that all are God's people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, man and woman, child and adult, Whoever you are, you become part of God's people by faith in what Jesus accomplished in his first advent. Now, how you live to please God comes out of all of the teaching of Scripture. But how you become part of God's people is simply based on faith in Jesus Christ. We still struggle with that today. Some of you are sitting here wondering, can I really be God's people? Am I really a part of it? Am I really a part of his family? I know I'm not good enough. Do you know what I did this week? Do you know the kinds of things that I said? Do you know the kinds of things that I did? Do you know the kinds of things that I thought? I can't be a part of God's people. Paul said, put that away. And I love the way he wrote it. He does this argument based on Abraham and declaring that even before the law, Abraham was part of the people of God, not by the law that came some 400 years later. But Abraham was accepted by God and made a part of his people. Because he trusted God. And his faith, 
Galatians 3, 6 was reckoned to him as righteousness. And in summarizing that argument, Paul writes this, you are all, and he uses sons here, and we'll see a reason why. He's including everyone, male and female, but he's going to talk about an inheritance that was part of what happened to a son. But you can include everyone. Again, this is one of those places where my 25 years in New Orleans helps. All y'all are sons of God. By eating the right food, by bringing the right sacrifices, by wearing the right clothing, by, by keeping these festivals. Is that what it says? By reading your Bible this many times, by going to church, by being raised in a Christian home, by, does it say any of that? How do you become a part of God's people? Through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, identified with Christ, placed into Christ. You have clothed yourself with Christ. We've been talking among the elders about baptism and whether we want to keep using the robes. Now, if we stop using the robes, we can baptize more people because we won't lose as much water each time we baptize people and they get out of the tub and take all the water with them. But the reason behind that, there's a kind of a tradition. And it was the idea that when you become a part of Christ, the old is taken off and the new is put on. There's an old Negro spiritual that says, the best thing in my life I ever did do, the best thing in my life I ever did do, the best thing in my life I ever did do was to take off the old robes and put on the new. The old robes were filthy and tattered and torn. But the new robes are glorious and never been worn. The best thing in my life I ever did do was by faith to take off the old and put on the new. Now, that's Paul's argument. But then he goes on, and this is where the the doctrinal statement is set in its whole. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And then he picks up the argument again, because if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. And all the promises about being part of God's people and being part of God's nation and being God's people. And again, I still believe Israel has its purpose as we move into the future. But that idea of being identified with God and a part of his people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people under God, as Peter declares it. We are Abraham's seed and we are heirs. Hold on to that phrase, heirs, according to the promise. That was Paul's message. But that caused a problem with these Judaizers. Well, what was the purpose of the law? 
Why did God give the law? Why did he do, you know, don't eat pork, don't eat shrimp, don't eat eels. That's all right. Don't eat, you know, oysters. That's okay. Why did he do the the tablets with the declarations of the basics of morality? Why did he do all that? Why was there the temple and the tabernacle? And why was there, you know, holy forks and holy spoons? Why did God do all that? So the question is, what then was the purpose of the law? How do we handle the law? Do we do like Marcion did, one of the the second century individuals who just said, throw out the Old Testament? Doesn't do any good. Just get rid of it. But yet the scriptures make it very clear that they were written for our benefit, for, for our purposes. What did the law do? What was the purpose of the law? Why did God give it? Not to make us a people of God. That's by faith. But to teach us how to live as people of God. Here's what I mean by that. You see, in a sense, the the law was the disciplinarian that prepared us to enjoy our inheritance. It protected and instructed us until we were ready to understand what God was doing. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 3 and actually chapter 4 where Adam read this morning in those first couple of verses in Galatians 4 where Paul says, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, now the heir are the people of God, as long as they are children, as long as they are immature, as long as they are having a lack of understanding, as long as they need further instruction to comprehend exactly what is going on. And the word there for child is actually infant, but what it, was do- what it does is it has the idea of someone who's still developing, still needs to understand. So he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery. We were in subjection under the basic principles of the world, under the basic understanding of how God functions in the world. What he's saying is this. In the Roman and Greek day, there were two kinds of adoptions. One kind of adoption we understand. It's when somebody who was not a part of the family was brought into the family and was declared a child of that family. But there was a second kind of adoption. And that was the adoption where if I have a son and that son is going to inherit my wealth, my responsibilities, my authority, Until he gets to that point of majority, until he gets to that point of maturity, that child is put under a tutor, a pedagogue, usually a slave. And that slave was his master. Do this, 
do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Training and protecting that child until he is ready to understand and accept the fullness of his responsibility and even more, the fullness of his privilege. It was a tutor, a pedagogue, preparing him for what God had for him. It's a wonderful commercial, I think, that sort of understand, tells us understand this a little bit. At Cheez-It, we expect a lot from our cheese. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cheese. Interrupting. Cheese! <laughs> should have seen that one coming. You should have, because that was, I even told you I was going to be interrupting you. <laughs> Morning, sir. Beautiful day, isn't it? We take the time for our cheese to mature before we bake it into every delicious cracker. Because if cheese it, real cheese matters. God took the time for his people to mature. He used the law to teach us, to mature us. And think about the things that the law taught us. The law taught us what it means to be moral and reflect the very character of God. The law taught us that our God is one and that all the other idols and everything else are simply foolishness. The law taught us what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. The law taught us what it means to love your neighbor as you would love yourself. The law taught us the vileness of sin and its ability to corrupt and destroy and separate and kill. The law taught us the cost of dealing with sin. That death was necessary to deal with sin and to be able to make someone a part of God's people. The law taught us, taught us what holiness was. That God cannot be stained in any way by corruption. You see, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, that we might understand when Jesus came and died upon that cross, that we had a foundation, the world had a foundation, that there was a little schoolhouse called Israel, where God was teaching the basics of the world, the basics of what it means to be God's creation. And he was tutoring them, and he had them under that pedagogue, and they were instructing. And so when the time came and Christ came, we understood what it meant. Never has a people had the level of impact on our spiritual understanding than the Jewish people because of the law. 
And now, we're no longer under the law, but we live by faith. Now, God is still in the same process. You understand, God is still trying to grow us. And just like Abraham, we become part of God's people by faith. Abraham in the promise of Isaac, us in the promise and events of Jesus. And under the Old Testament, the way you then learned as God's people how to live that out was by obeying the law. In the New Testament, there's a whole different methodology. It still uses God's word. It still uses God's community. But now it's also God's spirit that leads us and guides us and directs us. In fact, when we get to the the gift that God has given us in the midst of Advent, we find that the greatest part of that gift is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And now we no longer live according to the flesh, but we live how? According to the Spirit, who has both revealed the will and purpose and character of God in his word, but also works in our heart, not only to direct us, but to empower us. If you want to become part of God's people, it's by faith. But if you want to learn how to live that out in your life, it's by understanding the work of God's spirit in us through his word, through his people, and through his presence. For you see, God is still involved in helping us to become all he means for us to be. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ, those who are part of the people of Christ, those who are identified with Christ, that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach Unity in the faith. God is working in your life. He's using the circumstances just like he did in the Old Testament. He's using his word just like he did in the Old Testament. He's losing his community just like he did in the Old Testament. But now he also has his spirit living within us to guide us and to direct us. Teach us what it means to live in ways that please him. Not to become part of his people. That's faith. But to live it out in a way that pleases him. The Old Testament becomes volume one. The New Testament is volume two and expands and frees us. Paul goes on until we all reach the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness, hold on to that word, of Christ. How do we enjoy the inheritance that God has given to us? Well, it becomes ours through faith and we enjoy it by living in ways that please him as begun to be instructed in the Old Testament, but is fully instructed in the new and the indwelling of his spirit. 
I coached soccer for nine years. Loved it. Well, let me put it this way. I loved it in September. Usually by March, I was kind of tired of it and said, I'm never doing this again. And then in September, I would do it again. I dealt with the little guys. I love the 8, 9, 10, 11-year-olds. Do you know what I spent the whole year doing? Teaching them the fundamentals. I actually would begin by saying, this is a soccer ball. It is round. This is your foot. There are four parts of your foot that are flat. There are two parts that are round. Round on round doesn't work well. We talk about the rules of soccer. Get to the ball. Put your body in front of the ball. When you get the ball, control the ball. Make a choice. You have three choices. Dribble, pass, or shoot. And we'd go over those time, time, time again. Remember, If we put you on the left side of the field, stay on the left side of the field. If we put you on the right side of the field, stay on the right side of the field. If I put you in the center of the field, stay in the center of the field. If you are a forward, that means go forward. If you are a back, that means stay back. And we would drill it. But you know what I knew the whole time? There would come a time when those fundamentals would be so part of their lives that they would break free and to be able to roam the whole field with an understanding of the game that allowed them a freedom they could not have as we were drilling the fundamentals. Watch a Ronaldo. He's all over the field. Watch an incredible back. Watch how they move forward and watch how they switch and Cry switch and one goes to the middle and the other stays on the wing. Why? They have the fundamentals. But now, as they understand the game and they mature, there is a freedom they otherwise could not have. God says that's what Christ did. He gives us that freedom that we otherwise would not have. The foundations are laid by the Old Testament, but now we are free to live in ways that go even beyond what the Old Testament taught us. We are free to fully enjoy Christ. It doesn't mean that we live in immorality or or we live in antinomianism, neither without, uh, without principle and without truth, but it means there is a freedom that is ours. A freedom apart from the law. And don't let anyone put you under the law again. We have so many ways we do it today. You're not a good Christian if you're not doing this or not doing that. You're not a good Christian if you're not a Republican. You're not a good Christian if you're not a Democrat. You're not a good Christian if you don't send your kids to Christian school. You're not a good Christian if you don't homeschool. You're not a good Christian if you don't send your kids to public school and have them be a witness. You're not a good Christian. And we have all these things. And God says, I freed you from that. Why are you still living under that? God calls us to live in ways that please him. That reflect his morality and his love. We are free. And the Advent declares that. But one other thing. The Advent allows us to receive our full inheritance. There's a little phrase that Paul uses there where he says in verse 
for in the fullness of time, when the time was full, when the time was fulfilled, God sent his son. And the idea is God is sovereign. God is working things out and his timing is perfect. And there's a couple ways that I think that Paul means that. I think he means that in a prophetic way. He's sort of describing what Matthew talks about, where Matthew over and again says, and this was done to fulfill, and this was done to fulfill, and this was done to fulfill. And the idea is that God had predicted way back in Isaiah's time, way back when Moses wrote Genesis about, about the Garden of Eden, when the serpent would be crushed and the seed would be... De- would be hurt on the heel. All of that came to its fullness in the advent of Christ. It's the right time geopolitically with the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that allowed Paul to travel all through the Roman Empire. The roads that existed, the cities that were the center of activity the shared Greek culture and the shared language that allowed the gospel to spread in ways that never could have done before this. But most importantly, it was the right time spiritually. God's people had taken the law and made it a means of salvation. And God needed to come and say, no, it was only a tutor. The way is grace faith. You see, Jesus' first advent freed us from the law to enjoy the fullness of our inheritance. I can eat a shrimp, poor boy. But even more, I don't go to the temple to make a sacrifice. The temple is here. The temple is here. I don't need to go and before a curtain, before entering the very presence of God, the holy of holies is open. I can go directly in. You see, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 12 and following, look it up when you get home, that in the Old Testament, the priest day by day, every day had to bring a sacrifice, millions of oxen and sheep and doves were slaughtered because the sin was never dealt with. The writer of Hebrews says, but when our high priest came, he made one sacrifice for all time. And through that one sacrifice, all the requirements to make us a people of God, we're paid. We simply need to accept it. And then it says something amazing. After Jesus accomplished that, what did he do? The writer of Hebrews says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Do you know the one piece of furniture that did not exist in the temple? There was no chair because the work was never done. But in Christ, tetelestai, it's finished. And all we need to be people of God is to accept that sacrifice. 
But Jesus is present Advent. He comes into our lives when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and apply what he did cosmically to our lives personally. He frees us from the penalty of sin. He frees us from the power of sin. And he does that through the sending of his spirit. And oh, are we going to look at that over the next several weeks? But there's one more truth about Advent. And that is that Jesus' final Advent at the end of time will free us not only to have our inheritance, not only to begin to enjoy it, but to have and enjoy in its absolute fullness. Beloved, this is Advent season. And whether you do the Advent candles at home, whether you read the devotional, whatever you do, take this time to focus on the wonder of what Christ accomplished, how everything changed. If you have never taken that step to become a part of the people of God, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus, I invite you this morning, talk to me, talk to someone here. We'd be glad to tell you how to do that. For all of us, through God's people and through God's word and through God's spirit, let us enjoy what God has made available to us until that day when we experience it in its fullness. Advent, incredible time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the coming of your son and what he accomplished for us. Father, we pray that each here would know your son as their savior. And Father, then on the basis of that, to build our lives in a way that, yes, brings you glory and honor, but in doing so, allows us to enjoy the fullness of the inheritance Father, help us to understand what we have through your Son. And Father, help us to be faithful and your ambassadors and proclaimers until we see it in its fullness. And we ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus.